The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. I remember growing up how exciting Christmas morning was. I remember coming down the stairs and uh, looking around the corner and seeing the tree and seeing almost probably a hundred gifts under the tree. We had seven uh, people in our family, and so there were a lot of gifts to be given. And our Christmas would kind of take all day because with every gift, we would have to feel it and we would have to guess what the gift was. And so we would start opening gifts and we would take a break for breakfast and then we would open more gifts and then take another break and then open more gifts. And as it went throughout the day, I just remember opening some gifts that I really was not that excited about. Have you ever had these like socks and t-shirt and underwear? And you're thinking, these are not presents. These are essentials, right? And then I remember getting to the last gift and there was always so much pressure on that last gift, you know, like maybe this one will save Christmas, right? Like all the other gifts have been moderate. Maybe this one will rescue Christmas. And then I open up that last gift, you know, we're guessing, what is it? Is it a snowboard? No, it's a mouthpiece. Okay, great. And I just remember afterwards being like, is that it? Is, is that all that I get? And, uh, and even thinking, you know, maybe they're, they're, they're just waiting and the big present is yet to come and they just haven't revealed it. Well, as bedtime approaches, you realize that that's not true and you're just sitting there going, Man, that's kind of disappointing. Well, when I look back at that old kid that I was, I want to slap that kid uh, because that kid was very unthankful. <laughs> uh, that kid was very entitled. That kid was very selfish. Today, Trish and I are actually kind of preemptive in this whole process. And so the night before Christmas, we are either sitting down with our kids or cuddling with our kids or whatever it might be, and we remind them, what do you deserve? And Corbin and Caleb know by now, Dad, we deserve nothing. <laughs> That's right. You deserve nothing. Very good. That means anything that you get, you will be thankful for. Right? Because you deserve nothing. True story. Try it out this year. See how it works. It's worked pretty good so far. God has showered you with gifts. God has showered you with blessings. And yet I think if many of us are honest, we would say, is that it? Maybe the good gift that God has for me is yet to come. Because right now, I just really don't see what I have to be thankful for. You know, as I thought about this topic of thankfulness and my unthankfulness, I wondered why is it that there are so many times that I am not thankful. And I think it's because I reverse two truths that are very close, that, that are very clear in Scripture. One truth is that I deserve nothing. And the other truth is that God has given me everything. I reverse those truths and I think to myself, I deserve everything. And God has given me nothing. This is our natural tendency, isn't it? To say, God, why haven't you given me the good gift yet? Why haven't you given me the big present? Why haven't you made me happy yet? How in this heart do we cultivate thanksgiving? 
That's what we're going to look at today. If you would, please open up to Colossians chapter 1. This is our second week in the book of Colossians. It is page 983 in the Red Bible. It's page 1456 in the Children's Bible. Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, is declaring the supremacy of Jesus Christ as our Savior and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ as our Savior. And with this in mind, he looks to the church of Colossae, a church he has never been to, and he overflows with thanksgiving. And so that's what we're going to look at today, Paul's thanksgiving for the church in Colossae. Read along with me, if you would, Colossians 1, verse 3, and we will read through verse 8. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it, is also, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come, we come confessing that there are many times we are not thankful there are many times we are bitter. There are many times we are angry. There are many times we feel entitled. There are many times we are disappointed about your sovereign plan, God. And we don't respond with thanksgiving. We respond with anger towards you, Lord. God, I pray that today, through your word, you would cultivate in us a heart of thanksgiving. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So how do we cultivate a heart of thanksgiving no matter what our situation in life is? Well, we're going to look through this passage from the Apostle Paul, this letter, and there are three things that we need to understand about thanksgiving that help cultivate in us a heart of thanksgiving. It is the who, the what, and the why of prayer. The who, what, and why of thanksgiving. Who should we give thanks to? What should we give thanks for? And why should we give thanks now? Who, what, why? Let's start with the who. Who should we give thanks to? Verse 3, Paul says very clearly, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you all. We see what Paul is thankful for. Paul is thankful for the saints in Colossae. But what's more important than what Paul is thankful for is who Paul is thankful for. Two, he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting because when I prepare for sermons, a lot of times what I do is I'll log on and I'll listen to other sermons on this passage. And there was one preacher who said that in his studies of the letters from the Apostle Paul, which there are a lot, never in any of those letters does Paul ever thank a person. He never thanks a person directly. He always thanks God. Well, that got in my head and I thought, ah, that can't be true. And so I pulled up my Bible software and I typed in the word thank and looked at the epistles, the, the letters. 
Sure enough, every time the word thank is mentioned, it's giving thanks to God. And so I was like, well, maybe that's just Paul. You know, let's expand this search. And so I opened it up to the whole New Testament. And I had the word thank, and I looked at all the places in the New Testament that the word thank was used. Sure enough, every time someone said thanks, they were thanking God. Now, there were times where people were thanking other folks, but that was always seen in a negative light. For example, Jesus says, does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And so I'm looking, and this is strange to me. So no one ever thanks another person in the New Testament. This seems odd. I'm like, well, let me open it up to the whole Bible. So I do the search for the whole Bible. Again, same thing. Never is there a person that thanks another person in a way that is honorable. Matter of fact, when we see people thanking other folks, it's in a very negative light. Again, in the Old Testament, Isaiah 38, 18 says, For Sheol does not thank you, talking to God, but the living, the living, he thanks you. Now, I I can't say with certainty that 100% throughout the Bible, no one ever thanks another person in an honorable way. But at least in this very brief search, there was something that became very apparent to me, which is the object or the person who we should be giving thanks to. Who is the person that we should thank? It is God that we should thank for all things. This is primarily a heart issue, isn't it? So many times our Thanksgiving ends with a person or with a situation or with the weather, whatever it might be, and say, I'm so thankful for the weather. But you see, this understanding that all of our Thanksgiving has its origin back to God might even change our vocabulary. Let me give you an example. A few weeks ago, we purchased a refrigerator from uh, Easttown Mall. It was a consignment shop, so they don't deliver it and haul your old one away for free. So I go in there, and I drag out the fridge, and I, I try to take it through the front door. It doesn't work. I take it out the back door, and, uh, and I, I pull up my Suburban. I put down the seats, and I thought, okay, I'm going to put the fridge in, drive it home. And as I get it out there by myself trying to load it into the Suburban, which was the first bad idea, um, I realized this thing is not going to fit. And so I was like, what do I do? So I called up my old neighbor, Pat, who has a pickup truck. I said, Pat, I'm stuck, man. I don't know what to do. I'm stuck outside Easttown Mall, the back of it with a big refrigerator, and I have no idea what to do. And so Pat comes over, and uh, he, we get the fridge into the truck, and we take it back to our place. And during that ride home, you can imagine how you'd be responding. I was like, Pat, thank you so much. You know, I wanted to communicate how thankful I was for him, but I didn't want to embarrass him at the same time. And I was just so thankful for his generosity. As I look back at that night and thinking even through this passage and some of the studies that I did on Thanksgiving, I thought, you know what? Maybe my vocabulary should have been different. Maybe I should have said, Pat, I am so thankful that God has given you to be my friend. Pat, I am so thankful to God that he has given you a generous heart. Pat, I am so thankful to God that he gave you a night free where you could come help me. Pat, I am so thankful to God that he gave you a great big pickup truck. (laughs) You see how it's subtle, but it's a significant difference? 
You know, a lot of you encourage me, say, Dan, thank you for that sermon. What if it was, Dan, I thank God for that sermon. What does that do? Well, first off, that still gives encouragement to that person, but it also relates to one another what the source of that thanksgiving is. And the origin of every good gift comes from God. James 1, 16 through 17 says this, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every good gift, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. Now, was it wrong that I said, thank you, Pat? I don't know if it was wrong, but it was certainly incomplete, wasn't it? Because I wasn't designating the origin, the giver of all good gifts, even the good gifts of a big pickup truck. And so with our heart, all of our thanksgiving, although it might go to another person and through another person, its destination is God, the giver of all good gifts. You know, anyone in the whole world can express what they are thankful for, right? Every single person can express what they are thankful for. But only those that are in Christ can express who they are thankful to. You have a unique opportunity as the one who has a relationship with the giver of every good and perfect gift to give thanks to the appropriate source for that gift. And so who should we give thanks to? We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what should we give thanks for? Well, the simple answer is we should give thanks for all things. Later in Colossians, in Colossians 3.17, The Apostle Paul says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In all that you do, give thanks to God. And so we certainly give thanks to God in all things. This includes both the visible and invisible blessings of God. You know, it's very easy for us to give thanks for the visible things. You know, we thank God for a house. We thank God for food. We thank God for a brother or a sister or a friend or a mom or a dad. But Paul focuses us on an area that is often neglected. Paul gives thanks for the invisible blessings of God. Verse 4 to 5 is instructive for our own prayer life as we give thanksgiving to God as he goes to thank God for what he is doing in the lives of the saints. Look at verse 3 with me again. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Throughout Paul's letters, there are these three attributes, these three virtues that come up time and time again. Faith, hope, and love, right? You probably heard it at a wedding. Faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. You've heard it, okay. Paul brings up these virtues, faith, hope, and love, over and over and over again, and he brings it up here. And so I want to look at why Paul gives thanks for each of these virtues. So let's just take a minute to look at each of these individually. First, faith. Paul thanks God for the invisible gift of faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Again, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Why? Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Notice this isn't some generic faith, right? Like if your team is the underdog and it says you just got to have faith, right? 
Or someone who says, you know what, I am a person of faith. It is a very specific faith. It is a faith in Christ Jesus. Now, why is Paul thanking God for their faith? Why isn't Paul thanking them for their faith? Why isn't he saying, you did a good job placing your faith in Jesus Christ? Well, it's because everything, including our faith, is a gift from God. Paul says this very clearly in Ephesians 2.8. He says, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Ephesians 2.8 tells us that we cannot muster up faith in our hearts or faith in our lives. Our hearts cannot produce faith any more than our hearts could produce honey or rain or snow or grass or monster trucks or whatever it be. Only God can manufacture in our hearts faith through the Holy Spirit. And so because saving faith is a gift from God, all of the thanksgiving goes to God. Does that make sense? And so we thank God for the faith that he has produced in our hearts. Secondly, Paul thanks God for the invisible gift of the love for all the saints. Verse 4, he says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Verse 8, In Epaphras, has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now, when I read this term love, usually I just think of it as a normal love. Like, you know, I love my brother, I love my sister, I love my mom, I love my dad. But the love that Paul is talking about here is a supernatural love. See, any of you can love your husband or your wife. Well, some of you can. Love your husband or wife, right? Sometimes it's harder than others. Any of you can love your mom or dad or your brothers or your sisters or your best friends. Those people are easy to love. But the love that God is talking about here, the love that Paul is talking about here, is a supernatural love, a selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love. A love that can only be given if it has been received by you. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. In other words, it isn't before you knew the God of love, you didn't love at all, but you didn't love in this extraordinary way of God loving you. Let me give you an example of this, of how God's love encourages us to love others. I have a good friend here at Jacob's Well. I'll keep him anonymous. We'll call his name Joe. Joe grew up here in Green Bay, and he had a good friend. We'll call him Steve. I thought that happened. I saw everything turn blue. Joe had a good friend named Steve, and they grew up in Green Bay together. And um, they went to Christian school together and everything, and they were really good friends. Their paths kind of diverged. They went to different high schools, and then one went to college in the north, and one went to college in the south. Steve, the friend, uh, in the summers during college, would work at a Christian camp in the south. And he was so inspired by this that he told his friend Joe, hey, you have to come and work with me in the summers at this camp. And so Joe and Steve kind of rekindled their friendship and their friendship continued to grow as they served together as counselors at this Christian camp. Steve was such a great counselor that the camp later hired him on to be staff at that camp. Well, a few years later, it was found out that Steve had been molesting several of the children at that camp. Steve was given a life sentence in jail. And probably rightfully so. Because of Steve's sin, the Christian camp was facing major legal and financial crisis and is on the verge of closing. As you can imagine, many of Steve's friends walked away from him. 
They disassociated themselves with him. But Joe decided not to. Joe didn't detach himself from Steve. Joe still actively communicates with Steve through letters and phone and Skype. You see, the love that God calls us to is not an ordinary love, is it? It's a love that the world doesn't see. It's a love that we have experienced from God. You may ask, how could Joe still love Steve that unconditionally? It's because Joe himself has experienced the unconditional love of God in the midst of his own sin and in the midst of his own shame. We love because he first loved us. The love Paul thanks God for is an extraordinary love. It is an overwhelming love. It is an unconditional love. It is a gospel love. It is a love that should characterize all Christians. That verse I quoted to you in 1 John, it goes on, says this, we love because he first loved us. And then it gives us this warning. It says, if anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. My prayer is that Jacob's well would show this amazing love to all who enter through the doors. That Jacob's well would be a place where big sinners would feel the big love of God through the saints of God. That Jacob's well would be a place where murderers, adulterers, child molesters, alcoholics, porn addicts, drug addicts, sports addicts, work addicts, sin addicts, whatever it is, even legalistic, self-righteous, religious people would come and encounter the amazing love of God through the saints of God. Because the church of God is called to display the love of God, period. Do we at Jacob's Well have a reputation of showing the love of God? Well, as in any church, there are some good and some areas that we need to work on. One person commented, I love Jacob's Well because I can come in and be messy and it's okay, which I am so thankful for. That is, that is what our hope is, that we would be messy and look to Christ as our Savior. And yet others have come and said, you know what? When I first came to Jacob's well, it was very awkward for me. It just didn't feel like anybody was welcoming or glad that I was here. That, that's an area that maybe we need to grow in, in showing the gospel love. It's so easy to come together and sit in the same places by our, our best friends and talk to our friends all the time. But would we love the sojourner? Will we love the person who comes through the doors, who is wondering, is there anybody there who cares that I'm there? Would you reach out to them in love and know their name and welcome them over for a meal? Ask them questions, show interest in them, and love them because God has loved you. And so Paul gives thanks for this gospel love. Before I move on, I just want to make sure you don't hear what I'm not saying. That's what one of my seminary professors would always say. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we will unnecessarily put ourselves in harm's way. All of the people that serve in children's church go through a background check. I'm not saying that sin is safe here. It's not. People are safe. We love people. Messy people are safe here. But sin is not because we love the people. But what I am saying is that the church of God should show the love of God to the people of God. So Paul gives thanks to God for the invisible gifts of faith 
in love, and finally the hope laid up in heaven. Just reading this in context, because the the wording here is strange and interesting, and so let me back up. I know I've read this to you a few times, but verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. And then here it is, because of or on account of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, the wording here is kind of interesting because usually Paul and us use this word hope as an attitude, right? Like, I hope the Packers win. Colossians 1, later in Colossians 1, Paul says in verse 23, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. It's an attitude. Verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. These are attitudes of the heart. But in verse 5, Paul is not talking about an attitude of hope. He's talking about an object of hope. An object of hope that is laid up for us in heaven. This object of hope is the full blessing of God that awaits all of the children of God in heaven for all eternity. And Paul is thanking God for that certain hope that belongs to the Colossian saints. Now, why does this matter? In the Colossian church, if you remember, there were false teachers that started to infiltrate the church, okay? And these false teachers would have said, I'm a Christian. But they started adding on to the gospel, adding on to the simple message. And they said, if you want to be a super Christian, if you really want to be sure of your salvation, if you want to know that you have riches laid up in heaven, you need to practice all of these additional rituals, all of these special Sabbaths and all these worship of angels and things like this. But what Paul is saying here is all of those are useless. Do you want to know Do you want to have assurance of your salvation? Here's the litmus test. Faith in Jesus Christ, love for all the saints. Those aren't the litmus tests. These are faith in Jesus Christ, love for all the saints, because those things are gifts from God. And so Paul gives thanks. So just to review, who should we give thanks to? God alone. Who should we give thanks for? Or what should we give thanks for? Everything, including the invisible gifts of God, of faith, love, and hope. Third question, why should we give thanks now? You know, the who and the what of thanksgiving is important, but none of them matter unless we understand the why. Why should we give thanks to God? Well, Colossians 1, 5, the second part, goes like this. It says, of this you have heard before in the word of truth. What is that truth? The gospel. Why should we give thanks to God now? It's because of the truth. Because of the gospel truth. The gospel truth is a simple truth. This is what Paul is trying to emphasize in this book and in this passage and in this little segment is he's trying to express that the gospel truth is a very simple truth. That's why in verse 6, the second half, he says, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Paul doesn't say since the year that you comprehended it or the week or the month. He's saying the very day that you understood this gospel truth, this simple truth. He could have said the moment that you understood it. 
It goes on in verse 7. He says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. What Paul is communicating is the simple message of the gospel that was put forth by Epaphras is enough. Jesus is enough. You do not need to add anything on to Christ. And so what is this simple message? gospel truth. If you hang out here enough, you'll hear us use this word gospel a lot. And you might be saying, what does that word mean? Well, the apostle Paul puts it very clearly and very succinctly. It's all over the scriptures, but I want to give you the place where I think it is most precise. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this. this, He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, that Christ died for our sins and in accordance with the scriptures, and he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. There it is. The simple gospel truth. Jesus died for your sins and he rose again from the dead, conquering death and sin on your behalf. Now, the ramifications are unending, but the gospel message is so simple, a four-year-old could communicate it. We are not to add anything to this simple gospel. If you feel like, you know what, I understand this gospel, but I'm beyond that. I'm a mature Christian. You aren't a mature Christian. Everything points back to this good news, to this gospel message. Paul is telling us that Jesus plus anything equals nothing, but Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And so we give thanks for the simple truth. We also give thanks for the victorious truth. Verse 5 Again, second half, he says, Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the the whole world. The whole world. It is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So this gospel truth, this simple truth, is a real truth. But Paul is also saying it is an active truth, and it is a victorious truth. Now you may say, How is the gospel an act of truth? How is it a victorious truth? Isn't Christianity fading away? Aren't people getting wise to the scam? Look at Europe. Do you know what the origins of the cross are? Because I think the cross answers to us, gives us the answer to how this truth, this gospel truth is a victorious and active and growing truth. Do you know the origins of the cross? It's not in Christianity. Um, There are actually records of 500 years, over 500 years before the birth of Christ, when Darius I, the king of Persia, the great Persian empire, crucified over 3,000 political opponents in Babylon. The cross was such a symbol of power and authority and fear that the Roman Empire said, we'll adopt that. And the Roman Empire continued to crucify people because it was shameful and it was humiliating. It was painful and it was excruciating. But you know what? The Persian Empire and the Babylonian, I'm sorry, the Persian Empire and the Roman Empire were not the only two empires that wielded the power of the cross. So did God. So did Jesus. See, the simple gospel truth is this man, Jesus, who only taught for three years, wielded the power of the cross, not by killing his enemies on it, but by dying on it for his enemies, that we, his enemies, could be reconciled to God. And here's the most amazing part. The Roman Empire, the Persian Empire, and the Christian Empire 
When you look at those three, two of those you can only read about in history books. But one is an active, growing, victorious kingdom that is bearing fruit to this day. The gospel truth is a simple truth, but it's also a victorious truth that is conquering our hearts and gaining territory throughout the world. Let me end with this. There is an old Puritan who was once quoted saying, The thankful heart has a continual feast. The thankful heart has a continual feast. Some of you here today are starving. <laughs> You're starving. You think, what do I have to be thankful for? Right? I, I'm sure some of you would say that. What do I have to be thankful for? Life has not turned out the way I have wanted it. Either it's your health or your occupation or your marriage or your singleness or your grades or your finances, whatever it might be, you might say, life has not turned out as I had wanted it. So what do I have to be thankful for? Well, if you're not there today, I guarantee you that will come around where you ask the question, what do I have to be thankful for? And I want to remind you of this. The Apostle Paul is not writing from a beach in Florida. The Apostle Paul is not writing from his home where he has 2.5 kids and a white picket fence. The Apostle Paul is writing from a Roman prison where he is awaiting suffering, torture, and death. Paul possesses a gratitude, a thanksgiving that cannot be trumped by his situation. And so the question is, how can we have such a gratitude that is not dependent on our fluctuating situation? And the answer is looking at the prayer of Paul, the thanksgiving of Paul. Paul gives thanks for the invisible things, for the certain things, for the unwavering things. Paul doesn't give thanks for the visible things here. I think partly because the visible blessings are kind of fading away. But the invisible realities are true and they endure. Our circumstances are always in flux, good and bad. But the invisible blessings of God are unshakable. The blessing of faith, hope, love. The blessing of the simple but powerful gospel truth. The blessing of Christ in us. The blessing of God himself. If you only give thanks for the visible blessings of God, you will probably be depressed and distraught quite honestly, unthankful. But we are also called to thank God for the invisible blessings, the internal blessings that he has given to us, his church. Last story. Henry Ward Beecher gives this story that I think is very helpful for us, this illustration. He says, if one should give me a dish of sand and tell me there were particles of iron in it, I might look for them with my eyes and search for them with my clumsy fingers and be unable to detect them. But let me take a magnet and sweep through it, and now would it draw to itself the almost invisible particles by the mere power of attraction. He goes on to say, The unthankful heart, like my finger in the sand, discovers no mercies. But let the thankful heart sweep through the day, and as the magnet finds the iron, so it will find in every hour some heavenly blessing. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you and 
even if we are thankful today. We know there are many times we are, we are not, God. Lord, we pray that you would cultivate in us a heart of gratitude, a thankful heart, remembering that we deserve nothing, and yet you have given us everything in your Son, Jesus Christ. Give us thankful hearts, so that as we sweep through our day, our hearts may attract the remembrance of all of your blessings, both visible and invisible, God. Lord, we thank you for calling us to yourself as a people, as a church. We thank you for producing fruit in us, the fruit of faith, hope, and love. And we thank you most of all for that simple and active and victorious and beautiful truth of the gospel. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.